be nice if we could just continue like this. <laughs> All my events would have just one title, come and sit together in, in silence. And that's it. But because uh, our conceptual mind and the identification with that radio station of the narrative self is so complex, and uh, something in us claims ownership over those radio stations and uh, incredible important news. So that's why there's so many words in the Buddhist teachings. It's not because the essence is complicated, the essence of the Buddhist teachings is too simple, too close. It's because our conceptual mind is so complicated. It's the most simple and easiest, easy thing to just be. It's happening by itself. But our conditioned mind seems to create a seems to create a disconnection from silence, from stillness, from oneness, from completion. And we are now going to enter the part of the text where Jing Malingpa points to different belief systems, different thought systems, in which we can get lost and identified and solidified, so that we can recognize them. We can become aware of them. And that's the first step to liberate yourself, is to become aware of what you are caught in. Because if you are aware, then it somehow already implies that there is something which is aware. And that's something. That's what Lama, uh, what Jing Malingpa calls mind itself, non-dual awareness, pure awareness, presence, just being, beingness, suchness, emptiness, all just words for the conceptual mind, but they are meant to point to that which is undescribable and ungraspable. So the practice which we are exploring in this context is the practice of just sitting, shikantatsa. And in the beginning uh, I shared some instruction around just sitting, natural meditation or effortless meditation.
and uh, for our first sitting and maybe it's maybe it is one of the helpful things to let go of the idea of meditation and and use the word of just sitting so i want to bring into our first sitting um, something from the commentary of Ken McLeod to the third verse. From the Dzogchen point of view, so Dzogchen, the great perfection, the, the name for this, for, for this view which we are exploring, the Dzogchen view. From the Dzogchen point of view, all we have to, to do is sit, rest, and do nothing. So that's something to explore, what, uh, what is meant here with doing nothing. What does that mean? How, how do we do nothing? So to do nothing is, in this context, is something which is not the same as just spacing out. It's, it's an active doing nothing. It's very precise, but it's difficult to get it. What, what is meant with doing nothing. Exploring doing nothing. Neither with the body, which is the easier part, yeah, to just sit, relax. So in the Dzogchen tradition, they don't have this kind of seven-point vajra position with the head in a certain way, the shoulders in a certain way, the hands in a certain way, the eyes in a certain way, the tongue in a certain way. Uh, so in the Dzogchen, just sitting practice, the most important part is the relaxation. You sit as relaxed as possible, comfortable as much as possible. So this, uh, this practice actually invites us, us also into exploring the meditation posture of lying down. So that's the doing nothing of the, of the body, but then what it means to do nothing with the mind, that's a bit uh, more challenging. How to relax the grasping. How, how to be just present to what is without trying to add something like more peace or more calm and also without trying to take something away without trying to get rid of something very different than many other meditation practices where you modulate your attention you try to change, in some meditation practices, you try to change the contents, for example, a compassion meditation, a concentration meditation. In all these practices, you are supposed to do something, and you get instructions how to do something. And if you have done that many, many years, it's quite difficult to unlearn meditation. So for the practice of just sitting, we have to unlearn meditation. 
and there might be resistance because the other techniques and views, they are so convincing. They, they are so convincing, we learn. So why, why should you do something? Why should you mod modulate your attention? And they t talk about all the benefits. So we invest a lot of energy into it, adopting that belief system, adopting that practices and training our mind. And maybe we get even somewhere with it. Maybe we have provisional benefits of that kind of practice. So just sitting can be in the beginning like, I'm just wasting my time. I could say a mantra, I could do this, I could do prostrations, I could use this time to develop shamatha, I could use this time to develop self-compassion, all that kind of stuff. I, I, can, I can be more productive uh, with my meditation practice. And for some people, when they hear the instruction on of just sitting, for them it's like a fish in the ocean. Somehow they they can move with that. And for some people, it's more difficult to find out what is pointed to in chikantatsa, in just sitting. From the Dzogchen point of view, all we have to do is sit rest and do nothing, and let our confusion sort itself out. One metaphor here being used sometimes is the glass of clear water and there's mud inside and you stir it. So then the mud seems to pollute the clarity of the water, but actually it doesn't. It just it's just a, it's a temporary adventitious uh, movement. So one of the valid ways to handle that situation, to allow the water to clear up again, is to just put the glass of water down and do nothing. And that's so difficult for us, right? Because no, there's people who say, you know, drop something into it and it will catch the dirt and then it will fall down. Or if you stir in the right way, then it will go to the right, to the, yeah? So, or you can use some something. Yeah? And we have that approach a lot to our inner life. We need to do something. We need to figure it out. We need to apply medicine. and let our confusion sort itself out. Until the way we experience life becomes clear, empty, and free. Ajahn Chah, uh, the Thai forest master, uh, describes the practice of just sitting like this. If you want to practice meditation, put a chair in the center of a room, sit in the chair and see who comes to visit. So let's take that with us, you know, that metaphor. So 
imagine your, your mind as this room, and in the middle is a chair, and you sit, just sit down, and <coughs> you are present to what comes up. You, you are present to whatever visits. And uh, yeah, nothing else. So in order for finding, finding the possibility or allow this possibility to open, maybe it's helpful to do a bit of modulating your attention in the beginning. So following the movements uh, you are used to in the beginning of a meditation. So that part is still meditation here. Yeah, and then you might be familiar with some of the instructions I give, for example, allowing your awareness together with the breath to slide into the body. Dropping from the head into the body. Noticing the aliveness in the body. Dissolving the mental image of the body and perceiving the body as energy. The whole body is breathing. And then with the out-breath, softening the shoulders and the belly. And giving, you the, giving yourself the permission to do nothing. And noticing how the floor, the chair, and the gravity of the earth is supporting you perfectly. And let yourself be carried. And that helps you to have a bit of a distance to the stream of thinking. So you inhabit more the body than you do the head. And for our support and inspiration, we call upon the presence of the Buddha, the Kamapa, the Dalai Lama. So that the room uh, which we're sitting in, on our chair, is infused by a healing light, a loving light. This light is the light of our own nature, but initially we can project that outward In the, into the presence of the Buddha.
So now you're sitting in the chair in, an, in, a, in the room of your awareness. And you are present to the guests who come, who are, who are already here. And the entry practice might have supported a sense of something is opening, something is relaxing. And there's space for both. The spaciousness and the movements. The movements of thoughts, sensations, feelings. And you're sitting with a heart like the sky. So whatever is there in your experience, some tiredness or restlessness or some confusion, whatever. That's like the mud stirred up. Part of that mud stirred up is also the sense of I, the sense of being a body. Part of that mud is also time, location, past future, all that is part of the mud. So in this practice we trust that just by opening to what is, embracing what is, allowing what is, the confusion, the mud, will sort itself out. You don't need to refer to thoughts, to explanations. You don't need to hope that there will be a medicine, because the ultimate medicine here is just presence just being aware. So you sit in the middle of the mud with a loving, open presence, with a loving gaze, the light, Initially, there might be a sense that loving, that, that loving gaze, that loving 
light comes from outside. But it's nowhere and everywhere. And it's effortless. It is already. Always. It is just temporary obscured by the mud, by the weather. But you are not the weather, you are the sky. So if you hope by doing that something will change, that's doing. Letting go of hope and fear. This practice of just sitting is based on the trust in your own goodness that you have everything available in this moment to be complete, to be whole. Receiving. It's a receiving sitting, just receiving. Everything is happening to you. Everything is happening to awareness. Habit presence and not the mud, not the weather. Inhabit the sky, not the clouds. And then you rest. non-interfering, non-controlling, non-fixing, non-doing. If you suffer a little, so what? Just suffer a little.
cause suffering to be there. And then at one point, and we don't know when, a possibility opens up. We didn't know what's there. And it is okay that sometimes you modulate your attention again a little back to an anchor with present moment awareness, like the energy in your hands or the flow of the breath. But that is a stepping stone, a bridge to just being effortless being. If there's confusion, if there's resistance, you just let it be. thought arises like, am I doing this right, what I'm supposed to do, it's just thoughts. If some idea arises of how it should feel, then that is recognized as a thought. If a thought arises like, oh, that feels good, it's just a thought. If a thought arises saying, this feels really horrible, it's a waste of time, it's just a thought. Recognize thoughts as thoughts. They are visitors, they are part of the mud.
thoughts about the past, thoughts about the future, thoughts about me. Even uh, allowing this moment to be what it is, is just a thought. Allow your attention to flow where it wants to flow. No preferences, no picking, no choosing. Everything is mud. Everything which moves is mud. Everything you are aware of is mud. And then maybe something opens up. If you try to describe what is opening up and how it feels, it just stops. neither good nor bad. So Ajahn Shah says, if you want to meditate, you just put a chair in the middle of the room and you just sit and notice who visits. And that noticing is open, effortless. It's just happening. Resting in the looking, resting 
as awareness. So if you have <clears throat> a somewhat more structured meditation practice already with an entry protocol, with a mantra, with a visualization, with instructions, that's wonderful. And uh, if you if you feel like you you want to continue that, that's also great. But here the possibility now during the next two months, we and then also we will continue next year. You can add a practice of just sitting at the end, five ten minutes. In my case, when I was introduced into this practice by Peter Fenner, he actually challenged me to drop all practices. So now, at that point, I was a monk. I was a heavy-duty, progressive path practitioner. I had invested my identity into it. And I must say, I got somewhere with it. So there were results. It was terrifying for me. And uh, because also in the Tibetan tradition, you, you take the commitments, like, you know, six-session guru yoga, if you have a tantric initiation, you are supposed to do this practice every day. And, and within that system, they tell you that you will be punished severely if you don't do this. You will go straight to, there's a particular hell. It's called the Avicii hell. It's the hottest hell. And that's the punishment for people who breathe, who break their commitments, their samaya. I mean, even when I talk about now, it, I get, I get, there's fear in me. Yeah. I feel, oh shit. It's like, you know, Christian practice where you kind of, you, you challenge God and then you kind of, you go like this, you know, because you, you expect a lightning bolt to hit you 
but I, 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 I just did it. <laughs> and if I wouldn't have done it, which also would have made sense because you know, I'm I have a deep respect and faith into the progressive path methods, but that instruction, even if I would have continued to let go of progressive path methods, pointed to me where I'm hooked, where I'm attached, where I'm invested, identified with a certain belief system. And then I could have decided, okay, so now I know I'm, I'm holding on here, I'm afraid, uh, I'm stuck in the system, in the belief system, I'm brainwashed. Um, and that then gives you the possibility to start to hold these belief systems more lightly. You, and you become aware of the felt sense of being stuck in a belief system, being stuck in a method. And you will, hopefully, you might develop a kind of humor about it. Yeah? A humor about yourself, how, how without noticing it, you, you became a fundamentalist. You became someone who is invested into, a, into, into belief systems, into, into stories, into teachings, into words. You get to know where you became defensive. You get to know when you meet people with other belief systems, how you, how you feel maybe superior or you feel threatened by other belief systems. So, for example, for me in my case, if now here would be like a, let's say a monk, a senior monk, senior to me. I'm not a monk anymore, but anyway, you still have it in your blood, <laughs> in your being. And that monk would uh, tell me, this is really so stupid what you're saying, these people, it's dangerous, you shouldn't do that. Imagine there's someone who has a samaya to a certain practice, and this, and this person then takes a break of that practice, and then that person goes to hell. It's your fault. So these belief systems and these judgments in them and the self-righteousness can still get me, and I feel it immediately. It's not here. I mean, I don't feel it here. But uh, there is, it, it's quite a common experience for me when I notice, uh-oh, there's someone, maybe someone in the board of the center I'm teaching, I think they're not going to invite me again. I think I need to go back to the progressive things and, you know, and teach on that level, which I like, which I love. It's not 
you know, it's not that I, I, I despise them or you know, I don't have any, I just have reverence, respect and, and love to these kind of practices. But that's the dan- dynamic which uh, Jing Milingpa, what I'm just describing, uh, this dynamic of noticing that. And even if you continue to do your practice, which is maybe advisable, your mantras you have to recite or stuff like that. Uh, But you become aware of that. And Jing Malimpa helps us in the next verses uh, by presenting those different maps, these different belief systems, uh, within the Tibetan tradition, and he uses a, a model or a path, a path model, of the Nyingma tradition, which is called the Nine Paths, or the Nine Yanas. So maybe some of you are familiar with uh, what is called the Three Yanas. So it's a different map. So there's the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. It's a very common way to bring some sense of structure into that um, into that uh, amazing buffet in the Tibetan tradition of practice. So the the three yanas it's is kind of a, a, a bigger map and then in the Nyingma tradition they divide those three yanas into into the nine yanas. And uh, so Jing Melingpa goes through this eight because the ninth yana is the Dzogchen view. So he goes through eight views. So the ninth yana is the positionless, yeah? the non-conceptual. So, and that's what the rest of the text is about. But he goes through these eight, um, eight views, eight different ways to practice, eight different ways of describing why we are practice and where we are going with our practice. And he does it in a mocking way. He does it in an ironic way. He makes fun of it. And he, he uses quite, quite strong, strong words. So for, you know, if you are, as I, I, I almost said I was, but I still I am. If you are like a kind of uh, invested into into the Mahayana view, for example, and then in a text like this, someone makes fun of it, yeah? makes fun of the Mahayana view with strong words. I mean, he's he, I mean he's kind of offensive sometimes, and. Uh, but he does that not because he has a disrespect to this path. Actually, most of his texts, of the other texts he wrote, he wrote also Lamrim, similar to the Lamrim text. And so it's not that, no, that he is like throwing them into, onto the garbage. Although, when we read the verses, it kind of sounds like that sometimes. But I imagine he's doing that exactly to, 
to point to that in us when we become defensive. Yeah? To notice that. So for me, as a, you know, sitting in this kind of teacher place, uh, what is a, a, a really helpful practice for me is to really get a felt sense of that fundamentalist in me. So when I say things, when I say them too, uh, too convinced that it is like that, that there's no lightness, there's no playfulness, there's no humor in it. So I kind of try to convince people, and actually, and this will come later in the text, of course, you can do the same with the there's nothing to do, we are already enlightened view. You can be a fundamentalist in that. Yeah. So it's like, uh, so you can be a fundamentalistic non-dual teacher. And you know that because there's a certain energy in the way you talk. You, you, you are convinced that the words and the views you share, that that is the truth. And you're also convinced that by being convincing, you can convince other people. But what we are trying to share here together and explore, as Jing Malimpa says in the, before he goes into the eight views, he, he, the main theme of the first three verses is to remind us that what we're exploring here is beyond the conceptual mind, is ungraspable, undescribable. We can't, you can't teach this. You can't, you, of course, you can study and study and, you know, and increase your, your capacity to describe emptiness, uh, you, to, to describe awareness and consciousness. You have a convincing theory of mind, which you can share with people, and it's backed up, and so on and so on. And you forget that that's just words. It's just words. So when we go through these verses, you know, sometimes, you know, maybe they don't speak to us because they don't have something to do with our view. But uh, the view you have. So, so these verses then are also an invitation for us to reflect upon and to become aware what are your views, yeah, your belief systems. Yeah. I mean, people say things, yeah, I, there's my higher self, and that's fine. I mean, I'm not offended by that. 
But that's a belief system. And then if I would say, from a Buddhist point of view, this is new age bullshit, higher self. What is that? Show me higher self. It's just made up. Of course, then a higher, higher self proponent feels defensive, feels, feels not seen, feels not received, feels rejected. So that's the, 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 the like that's what what these verses might bring our awareness into. And uh, I'm I'm very aware of that. Uh, so when I talk from the fundamentalist, from the one who knows, I talk from a different place. Now when I talk, I'm listening to my voice. And my voice changes when I talk from I know this. And when I talk from there and someone, someone I project authority into criticize what I'm saying and says, you are an heretic, I get afraid because I'm invested in that view and I feel attacked by a different kind of view and then I'm not free anymore I'm, I'm in a prison yeah. and uh, so one one direction here well and you, Ken McCloyd says something similar. He is, um, so what, what do you do if you meet your in, inner fundamentalist? So obviously the suggestion here in this context is you're just sitting with it and you let the muddle to sort itself out. So you don't, you don't, you don't argue, you don't try to find a compromise between, let's say, the, a progressive view practitioner and if you hold a direct, direct path view. So you don't try to conceptually to sort it out and to make a kind of compromise because you can do that for the rest of your life. And people do because it's there's so complex philosophies that's developed within Tibetan Buddhism around this discussion. You can spend your whole life to try to figure that out here. So the, the suggestion here is to let the, the mat sort itself out by just noticing that fundamentalist, that self-righteousness, that uh, feeling feeling attacked and scared also in my case I get afraid I get really afraid that it's like the the fear of being pushed out of your tribe because you're not fitting in anymore and then you're alone in the cold It's like the fear of being punished by God. It's horrible, that fear. Because you can't escape God. 
He will be always after you because you are an heretic. You, you, uh, you, 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 you argued with what is in the Bible. Here is maybe the Bible in the Guluk tradition as the Lamrim Shem of Lama Tsongkhapa. And then slowly, slowly, and oh, I can feel how, maybe they, it's also, also an age thing, I can feel how I get much more relaxed, much more free, much more open. So I, I kind of dare more and more to speak for my heart, for my own experience. And I'm getting more free in being, being pushed out of the tribe because I, I, uh, I don't fit and that's so wonderful. It's, it's so wonderful. So we, we covered the first two verses. We will have a break soon. We, we covered the first two verses. In the first verse, Jing Lingpa introduced mind itself. So that is, is, is the word. What is using mind itself. So when you, when you read in the text mind itself, what other words for mind itself is non-dual awareness, pure awareness, the ground, ultimate bodhicitta, the emptiness of your mind, the nature of your mind. Uh, so suchness, um, uh, nothing, yeah? nothing, but what a nothing. Yeah? So that, that nothing. And nothing is actually a good word because the experience, if the possibility opens up and we don't know when that is, the experience might be a proclamation like something, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. This is nothing. This is nothing which is dancing. Yeah? What this is a dance which is nothing. Oh, so this is everything which is nothing. This is nothing appearing as everything. This is called the union of emptiness and appearance. In the in the tradition, the union of emptiness and appearance. This is the nothing which is everything, contains everything. Nothing ever happens. The last word of the 16th Kamapa when he died. Nothing ever happens. And, and this is this moment. Nothing ever happens. Everything is already empty. which doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It neither exists, nor does it not exist. It neither exists, nor does it not exist. 
That's the Heart Sutra. There's neither a self nor is there not a self. So your conceptual mind, which has to think in opposites, conceptual mind needs to settle with, yes, there is a self. And that's a view. And there's many people who have that view. It's a, it's, a, it's a basic assumption of many people that there is a self. They think that as assumption that there is a self makes them feel that there is a self. So the other view is there is no self. So there's you know, Buddhist people who very easily say, oh, there is no, th- no self, there is no self. I have looked, there is no self. That's not Buddhism. That's an extreme view. And that's not what the Buddha taught. Yes, the Buddha taught it at certain occasions to certain people. For example, when someone would come to the Buddha and say, oh, there is no self. Then the Buddha would say, no, 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 there is a self. And then this person would would get angry, or afraid, or would start a philosophical discussion with the Buddha. And then, after some while, maybe because he trusts authority, he says, okay, so I agree, there is a self. And then the Buddha says, no, 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 there is no self. (laughs) Yeah, but, but, you know, you said there is a self. But, But that that saying there is a self was meant to a certain person who had fallen into an extreme and was clinging to that view. So, and then at the end of that discussion, the Buddha might say what he said in the Heart Sutra, there is neither a self nor is there not a self. And that's actually what he really means. That's the most precise way to say something about this. There's neither self nor is there not a self. This moment is neither real nor is it not real. This moment is neither real nor is it not real. So that's... That is... You can, see, you can, you can approach that statement as a koan in the Japanese... I think it's the Rinsei school or the Soto school, maybe the Rinsei school, they work with koans. Now, there is these two streams in Zen. Shikantaza, Dogen, just sitting. And then there is another tradition in Zen, progressive, and they use koans. So you burn for the koan. There's neither self nor is there not a self. So imagine that would be our practice. And every day I would sit with a big stick in a room and you would need to come into my room and give me an explanation of that sentence. Until something happens, until that possibility opens up, which 
Ken McCloy puts that put puts it into this words, a possibility opens up. When that possibility opens up, a person for whom that possibility has opened up recognizes that. It, it doesn't matter what you say. You can recognize it. You can recognize if that possibility opened up in another person. And that person then can say there is a self or there is no self. It can say moo. It can sing a song. It can, the person can dance. It doesn't matter. You recognize it from heart to heart, from mind to mind. You together recognize And you still can't say what it is, but you recognize. You get it. You get that the other person got it. So that's when a master in this tradition, like his Holiness the Dalai Lama comes into a room, there's something there. Something opens up. That possibility, sometimes uh, that's the first glimpse people have. And they, they, they don't call it no mind or they don't call it non-dual awareness. They maybe would just feel, somehow I feel a lighter, I feel lighter. I had all these stories and discussions and now I, I even can't think about it anymore. It's just like, what was my problem? What was my struggle? It's gone. So, that's like one way to if you have a karmic connection. That's one way to actually start your path. With, a, with, an, with an experience. You start your path at the end. With a glimpse. What is called a pointing out. And then, for the rest of this life and future lives, you stabilize that. 